Hello everyone. Do you like reading? Do you like walking? Do you like thinking about your life? Then we have got something for you. Our Common Ground Pilgrimages are going to be announcing our slate of fall and winter 2020 pilgrimages on March 2nd. So if you sign up for our newsletter at readingandwalkingwith.com, you will be the first to know when registration launches and only people on our newsletter will get 30 minutes early registration access and it's first come first serve. So signing up first might mean the difference between getting a spot or not. There's less than 20 spots on each pilgrimage and one of them might be involving me and a book that we all love. So you're talking about you leading a pilgrimage with he's just not that into you? A hundred percent, yeah. <laughs> oh my God, I'm there. So that's readingandwalkingwith.com. Sign up to the newsletter. Be the first to know about our pilgrimages this year. Chapter 27. The Centaur and the Sneak. I'll bet you wish you hadn't given up divination now, don't you, Hermione? asked Parvati, smirking. It was breakfast time, two days after the sacking of Professor Trelawney, and Parvati was curling her eyelashes around her wand. I'm Casper Tukail. And I'm Vanessa Zoltan. And this is Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. So just a few quick announcements before we jump in today. There are still a few spots available for our writing as a sacred practice retreat, which is just a few weeks away. Also, there are still some spots available to join Casper and I at the Omega Institute treating this book called Harry Potter as this thing called the sacred text. Sounds awesome. I don't know. It sounds wacky to me. And then we also have a couple of live shows coming up. Ariana and I are going to be doing a Women of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text live show with Nora McInerney in St. Paul, Minnesota on April 13th. And on April 15th, Casper Turkile, me, Vanessa Zoltan, and the great John Green are going to be doing a show in Indianapolis. You can find information about all of these great events at harrypottersacredtext.com. I liked Indianapolis. <laughs> Indianapolis. And friends, we're discussing some sensitive topics today, including self-harm. So if that's something that's not something you want to listen to, you might want to skip to the sacred practice, which you can hear just when the music starts. Vanessa, our theme this week is hate. So I'm curious what story you have for us. Yeah, it was one of the harder ones to come up with. And not because I'm one of those people who's like, I don't believe in hate. Like, I super believe in hate. It is alive and well in my life. For instance, there is a friend of mine. We will call her by the fake name of Nicole. And whenever I go home to California, hers and my paths cross. And the confusing thing about Nicole is that I really like and respect her like 80%. 80% of she and I have the same interests. She works in education. She's like funny and like an abrasive way. She likes gross jokes. I like gross jokes. We like similar kinds of TV. She's a Gilmore Girls fan. She's a fan of the Harry Potter books. Like we have a lot in common. And then 20%, I hate her. So she will make like grand proclamations about things like on behalf of all Jews. She'll say things like Jews don't do that. Jews do this. She's Jewish. And I'm like, nope, I don't agree with that. That's not true about Jews. And I've given a lot of thought as to like why my reaction to her is so strong when she says these things. Like she's just saying things that I disagree with. These aren't 
hurtful, hateful things she's saying. And I think it is because I see us as so similar that I think that she's like representing me in some way. So there's an intimacy and um, a really personal existential nature to hate that I think is just different than almost every other negative emotion. I'm interested in talking to you about that. I guess the other thing that we think about, we also say like you can't love others until you love yourself. And it's like you can't hate others if you don't a little bit hate yourself. And this is the really interesting thing in your story as well as in the text. Because on the one hand, I completely resonate with what you're saying. That like the fact that you recognize yourself in someone else means that you're like, oh, I really don't like that because you don't like it in yourself. right? And all of us have that to some extent. But then there's also a different kind of hate, which is the the othering, you know, the the making other people less than because they're different. The kind of deep-seated prejudice and violent hatred that comes, it has to emerge from yourself somewhere. I agree. So let's talk about that because I've been thinking a lot about this. And I think that that is also about self-hatred. You know what I don't hate? It's the 30-second recap. (laughs) Three, two, one. Forenze is a teacher now, and he is like, Harry, you should warn Hagrid that his experiment's not going well. And Harry, like, has a really hard time getting into Hagrid because Umbridge is at every single lesson, and he finally warns Hagrid, and Hagrid's like, you don't know what you're talking about. And then Marietta gets, like, called – the DA gets caught and, like, uh, dispersed. And Marietta has sneak written across her face, and then um, Dumbledore, like, obliviates her memory so she can't talk or whatever, and it's terrible. She's just, like, a victim over and over again. It really stresses me out the way that she gets treated in this chapter. That's a lot to process there. Yeah. Okay. Please do better. I need some help today. On your mark, get set, go. So DA is practicing and suddenly Dobby's like, you guys got to run. Um, people know. Run, 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 run. And so Harry leaves. and um, But Draco is like there with other students and Umbridge is there. And then they then they um, uh, they catch Marietta. And um, then like Kingsley is there and, and he obliviates her. And then Dumbledore says like, no, it was my idea. It's got my name on it, doesn't it? It's a Dumbledore's army. And they're like, damn it. Um, and then he kind of like hands himself in. But he doesn't because he makes everything go away and then he's gone. And then they're there, there. That was not very good either. (laughs) No, at least you got all the Dumbledore stuff. So, Vanessa, you were saying that even when we hate someone for being different to us, there's still an element of, like, self-hatred in there. Can you unpack that a little? Yeah. So, for example, Umbridge really hates non-human creatures. And Mm. we see, like, they think that she's really on the warpath against Forenze now because she's upset that he was hired. She's, like, really focused on Hagrid. And I think that when you hate someone for being different than you, you are threatened that they are somehow better than you in their difference, right? You will not replace us is like the most indicative line of that to me, of like really showing us their hand. And that's what was chanted in Charlottesville a couple of years back, right? Yes, exactly. When the white supremacists were having their rally in Charlottesville several years ago, they were chanting, you will not replace us. And like the other way to say that is, I am scared you are going to replace me. That's a terrible reason to hate. But I think that that is also bounded in, in identity. And so Umbridge is like, She has a little bit of power, and she's excited to have that power. And so she doesn't want to acknowledge any other forms of power. That definitely makes sense to me. And I guess I'm still interested in the bit of, like, 
What's the bit in herself that she's hating when she's hating Forenza? She's hating her own mediocrity, right? Oh, I see. That she hates that there isn't anything that actually makes her special. She didn't pull herself up by her bootstraps to make herself into this accomplished ministry official. It was luck and supremacy and the fact that she's white and born at the right time. And like, so there's nothing special about her that got her to where she is. And I think on some level she knows that and so wants to subjugate everybody else in order to maintain her authority, even though she's mediocre. I'm with you now. It is it is an expression of her own fear of her own unworthiness or lack of skill. or And maybe that's the bit in herself that she hates is that like, actually that she isn't special, she isn't good at something, or that she's chosen the wrong thing, because I genuinely believe we all have gifts to give. And she's managed to put herself in a situation where she's only drawing on on her anger and her nastiness. Yeah. And I also wonder if Renze is someone who's clearly very comfortable with ambiguity. He's on a cosmic level. Right. Whereas Umbridge is trying to control everything and is like hanging up decree after decree. Right. And Renze is like, am I going to be kicked out of my home? Okay, I'll be kicked out of my home. I'll make a new home. Right. So like you never know, I think, what it is that is sparking that hatred. But just like Nicole's not doing anything wrong. The things I hate her for are the things that I'm like bound up in. I was going to go there. I I mean, this is hopefully what a reflective practice can help us do, which is when we have a reaction like that, which is so intense and unusual, right? Most of us don't go around the whole day hating everyone, I hope. So when we do have those moments of like an allergic reaction to someone, when your skin crawls or you just feel like a ugh, to think about like, what does this remind me of in myself? Or at least to be conscious of what it is that we're reacting to, even if we're not yet ready to kind of think about it in our own way. Or at least rather than being like, okay, here's Nicole. Again, this is a fictional name for her. Rather than being like, well, what is it that I don't like about her? Is it her ears? Is it her, you know, whatever. And to instead be like, okay, what is it in me that is responding like this? Like, it's not about her. But I do think it's important to separate the way that I feel about someone like Nicole to the way that I feel about people who have done injustices against me. Do you see that in a chapter in a way that we can help me understand? Well, the thing I'm thinking of is Harry and Draco, right? Like, there's actually not a lot of interaction with them in this chapter, but there's a crucial thing, which is that Draco is the foot soldier of Umbridge, right? Like, he is there, he's running faster than she is, he's trying to jinx people as they're running out of the room of requirement after the DA meeting has ended. And Harry and Draco at this point have had like a five year long history. They are like fierce enemies. And in some ways, the books are focusing on a much bigger fight at this point, right? Harry versus Voldemort. But Draco is still always there. And in some ways, I feel like the hatred towards Draco is more intense because he's closer. There's something both significant and insignificant about Draco. Well, Draco's like harassing Harry's best friend. All the time. Right? Like Weasley is our king is still being chanted all the time. To me, that, though, goes back to, like, the more personal kind of hatred. Mm. Draco is jealous of Harry, right? Like, Harry is always the center of attention. Draco wishes he was the center of attention. Draco has to buy his way onto the Quidditch team. Harry is just, like, naturally talented. And I think that Harry's hatred of Draco is not so much about jealousy, but it's like, you are doing awful things to me all of the time. I just hate you because, like, you're literally my enemy. Yeah, and so that, to me, those are, like, two different kinds of hate, right? Mm. The way that Draco hates Harry is different to me than the way that Harry hates Draco. 
you know, we don't see it exactly in this chapter, but it's so present throughout the second half of the book, which is Neville's response to Bellatrix and the fact that these 10, you know, prisoners have escaped from Azkaban. Because there is an example of, right, like, you have tortured my parents. You have done this horrific crime that I have to live with every day. For me, that, like, you can't help but justify that hatred. Oh, yeah. And Neville has done, Neville doesn't see part of himself in Bellatrix. Right. Neville doesn't have, like, a complicated feeling about, like, oh, if I was in Bellatrix's shoes, would I be doing the same thing? Like, Bellatrix is just a bad actor in his life. Yeah. And he's a completely innocent victim. Yeah. And yes, I guess that was the point I wanted to make. It's like, that is a completely different kind of hate than the hate that Draco and Harry are engaged in. Yeah, that's helpful. And what I really like about Neville's response, especially in these later chapters in this book, is that he doesn't generalize, you know, the horrific thing that's happened to his parents and to him by Bellatrix and her associates into saying, like, I hate all women, right? Or like, or turning it into an abstraction, which becomes this kind of group hatred and how we see the deepening of racism or anti-Semitism or Islamophobia, all the things that we know we're dealing with right now, or hatred of women. And instead, he's like, okay, she's out of prison. I have to get really good because I think she might be coming for me or my parents again. There's something very laser focused about Neville's response, which is, I just think, admirable and contained in this very mature way. I was just thinking about a moment. So I I was assaulted at work 10 years ago now. Mm. And what happened was... My, like, big boss, um, he was the chief education officer, he and I wrote a speech that he was going to give in front of several hundred people together. And I went up to him right before he was about to give the speech, and I was like, hey, how are you feeling about your speech tonight? And he said, why would you say that? And I was very startled. I was like, what? And he picked me up and shook me and said, it's not funny, Vanessa, and put me down. Whoa. This is a man that now... I feel profound hatred for. Hmm. And what happened was he had recently been passed over for a promotion and his new boss told him, thank you so much for writing speech tonight. I'm actually going to be the one who's giving the opening remarks. And he obviously couldn't yell at his boss. And I did not know that. And so he says that he thought I was mocking him Hmm. and that that is why he shook me. And he ended up getting fired for it because he shook me in front of people. (laughs) But... He was embarrassed. And then he had such hatred for me in that moment as like calling him out for this embarrassing thing, which I wasn't actually doing. And then he then like through this violent act created in that moment such hatred in me for him. I mean, in my opinion, the mistake in that moment was rather than being like, okay, I'm embarrassed. I need to take a walk around the block until I can act professionally. He decided to take it out on like a 23-year-old kid and behave violently. But it was just this, like, embarrassment, hatred, mm-hmm. hatred, right? Like, mm-hmm. it just was this cauldron. You end up in a cesspool, right? And yeah. and this is, this is the thing with hatred, which is really a form of violence. The people I admire the most are able to take that feeling, which happens to all of us. We right. all get ashamed. We all get embarrassed. We all, like, get rageful and are able to somehow do something with that, which does not pass it on. Right. And I think we see that in this chapter with Ferenc. 
Mm. He has literally just been expelled yeah. by his only community. Yeah. He has hoof prints on his chest as he walks into the door and his reaction to these students who are in some way the cause, right? Because Dumbledore's offered him this like intense choice that he has to make. He says, like, I am not going to pass on this hatred. I'm not going to be surly or awful in all the ways that we've seen other teachers be. And like students ask him ignorant questions. Offensive questions. And he just like silently is like... That is not how we talk about that. Right. And like moves on. Right. He doesn't snap at anyone. Right. Oh, I want to have those skills. Yeah. It's grace. Right. Yeah. That's beautiful. Yeah. I don't have it. So, Casper, one of the moments in this chapter that really broke my heart was when Harry forbade Dobby from hurting himself. And Dobby is free now. Dobby loves being free. And he still, when he, like, goes against an order that he's been given, still feels the need to hurt himself. Mm. And I just saw Harry saying to Dobby, Dobby, I forbid you from hurting yourself, as such a beautiful interruption in that way that sometimes we can do for each other. Like, Mike, my former boss, couldn't, right? He couldn't interrupt himself. And he was a man in his 50s. Like, he should have been able to. But what a gift Dobby in this moment clearly cannot interrupt himself Mm -hmm. from this pattern. And Harry, as like a friend who loves him, has figured out a way to help Dobby potentially interrupt it. Yeah. It so resonates with me. I had an experience in the last year that was the most difficult experience of my life, I think. And it left me completely humiliated. And I felt You know, when you just hate yourself so much, like you just hate everything. And I was completely overwhelmed. And that night, really for the first time in my life, I wanted to hurt myself. Like I I had that maybe a different (laughs) expression of it than Dobby, but just that sense of like, I need to feel anything else than what I'm feeling. And I think physical pain would be better than this. And I think what I'm grateful for is that I literally Googled, what do you do when you want to hurt yourself? And found this incredible (laughs) website that gave me some ideas. And I say that to say that there are times when you're able to interrupt that. And there are times when you're not. And Dobby in this situation clearly is just consumed, not just with, I think, a sense of hatred for himself in this moment, but actually a pattern, like a whole history of being told how he should react when he does something. And so... So I guess I'm just echoing your point, which is that we need one another to help look after each other, you know, that we can't make it through the experience of hatred on our own. I I really think that's true. Whether the other is like someone who's made a website form, right, that you can access in that moment, whether it's a friend on the phone or someone who literally tells you like you're not allowed to hurt yourself like Harry does with Dobby. This idea of self-care is so challenging to me because I think... Really, we we need community care, right? We need to look after each other. So even to interrupt the feelings of hate towards other people or towards ourselves, we need one another. Well, I am so grateful for your friend Google. (laughs) Right. (laughs) (laughs) So with that, Vanessa, let's go back to the text (laughs) and look at one more example where we see this super intense theme, it turns out, of hate. (laughs) No one's crying. It's just raining on my face. It's sweating from my eyes. Yeah. <laughs> so we have to talk about this moment between Marietta and Hermione and also Marietta and Dumbledore. And Shacklebolt and Umbridge and Fudge. Like everybody wants something different from this poor child. 
this child. And she was a member of the DA. She signed the document that Hermione created without knowing that it was enchanted and that when she said something, she got this, you know, like facial situation that just says sneak. Yes. This is a hateful act 8,000 times. Reason one, I hate it. (laughs) Most important. But hang on. She has betrayed Dumbledore's army. She knows what the consequences are going to be. She signed up knowingly. Like, I'm I'm just playing. She knows what the consequences for Dumbledore's army will be for her friends. Yes. Yeah. She's a tattletale. Sure. That's not great. I'm not pro what she does. Okay. I am very anti what everybody does to her. Say more. Okay, first of all, I think that Hermione wrote a hateful contract. I think a contract that is designed to cheat other people or to trap other people is a hateful document. I think that this country is built on a lot of laws that are written that way. Mm. And that we, through like justice movements, are trying to rewrite those laws. But I think that contracts that are written with ill will like that are hateful. And I just think that Hermione should have announced at the beginning saying, once you sign this, there will be physical repercussions to you if you break the oath. And then it can be up to you as to whether or not you sign. That's totally fair. But like that is a hateful, manipulative act and shame on Hermione. And I don't know what is gained in not telling people because it would have kept more people quiet or it would have kept those people out of the DA and they wouldn't have known the meeting. So it seems only motivated by hate. I feel like this has really got something to do with Rita Skeeter because Hermione has learned to deal with people with the way that she learned how to silence Rita Skeeter. Like the only way was to physically trap her. And it's the same tactic, right? It's like, I will humiliate you in public if you disobey what I know is right. And the thing that she's right about is true, right? Is right. But it is the way in which she makes people behave in small ways, sometimes with the trio, which is playful and fun. But here it's like in a really big way. And like good on Hermione that it's such a good jinx that even Umbridge can't figure out how to undo it. Defense against the dark arts, my butt. Like, (laughs) and I wonder if part of it was motivated by like wanting to humiliate Umbridge. Mm. Who knows? Hermione is that smart. Then she is standing there, Marietta, and she is, like, not being thought about as a human being at all. Nobody is like, sweetie, are you okay? Have you been to the hospital wing? Like, Fudge wants one thing out of her. Umbridge wants another thing out of her. Poor Marietta's face is in pain, and she's humiliated. And the more she talks, the worse it gets. And everyone is like, just keep hurting yourself because I want to instrumentalize you. So being willing to keep hurting yourself because of what I need Oh, trust me, we'll fix it later. I mean, this is very similar to how Dumbledore treats Harry. Oh, interesting. I mean, that is an ultimate instrumentalizing relationship. And again, the purpose is clear and fair and right. But the way in which information is not being shared, the timing is being forced, that physical bodies are being put at risk. This is like a micro moment of what is Harry's experience over seven books. Fascinating. Well, and then we see Dumbledore's willingness to let this happen, right? Kingsley silences Marietta. And Dumbledore is like, thank you, Kingsley. Good work. So now we have an aura and the most powerful wizards in the land silencing a woman who has borne witness to like an insurrectionist thing and has then been attacked. I mean, it's just like violence upon violence. 
And sure, the real bad guys, Voldemort and whatever. But oh my God. I don't know what to say. It just, I think what it is, is that like big hate gets born out on the most vulnerable bodies Mm. the worst. Mm. I think that that's all that there is to say. It's these huge ecosystems of hate. Fudge is, like, scared that he's going to lose the election. And so he's just, like, bullying everyone and blustering. And Umbridge is, like, drunk on her own power. And so she's behaving in this way. And Dumbledore has his good reasons. And it's this ecosystem. But then it's just this young girl's body that is receiving all of the violence in this moment for all this hate. And we saw Harry absorbing all of the violence just a few chapters ago. It's just like everybody. You know, Vanessa, this really reminds me of the First World War, where elites, who sometimes were even family members, had conflicts. And although there were real conflicts, they kind of fell into war against one another. And millions, millions of people are conscripted and die in the trenches for literally nothing. I mean, for so little. You know, in a single day, hundreds of thousands of people being killed for a few meters of mud. Uh, So I'm really resonating with what you're saying, that power combined with hate equals suffering for the people who've often done the least to create this situation. Let us remind ourselves we are in a school and whether Marietta has done something wrong or not, this is way beyond what should be happening in the same way that Harry is in a school and the DA is in a school. And what is going to happen to them is way outside of what should be happening. All of the violence, all of the pain and suffering is being borne by children in this situation. And so it just speaks so intently about the danger of hate being combined with power. If we don't challenge that in our classroom, in our home, in our village, right? Like on Twitter, it's going to end up in our national politics, in our international warfare. In our jails, right? In Amen. A hundred percent. I think the big thing that I am taking out of this conversation is the like, walk around the block thing Mm. or that moment of like I am feeling hate and like before I act because I think the feeling of hate is just it's human Uh right like and there are people who we should hate we should hate bullies we need to be bolstered by hate sometimes in order to take action against oppressors right so I think hate has its time and place it's that we don't want to be controlled by hate to be destructive on things that we don't want to destroy, whether that's ourselves, our friendships, our employees, our colleagues, whatever it is. And so I know that this isn't like Joe Davina and you didn't ask me what I feel called to, but I just am like really feeling like it is fine to feel rage and hate. It is often appropriate to feel rage and hate, but we don't want hate to be making decisions. Right. We want to be making decisions with our hate, not letting hate make our decisions. Hashtag be like Forenze. <laughs> Vanessa, this week's spiritual practice is Pardes. I love Pardes. We do love Pardes. And Pardes is a four-step Jewish practice where we again choose a random sentence from this chapter, and try to think about it like we're walking through an orchard where we're, we're picking just a word or a phrase and delighting in its juiciness. 
And the first step that we do is the pshat, which is what is the, what is the literal meaning? Like what's happening on the surface level? And the sentence that I have for you, it's actually a snippet of a sentence. Ooh. Escorted back to the ministry. This is Dumbledore is being threatened by Fudge? That's right, with Percy. Oh, God, We haven't Percy. even talked about Percy yet. Yeah, so this is when Dumbledore has made this false confession that it is his army, right? It's got his name on it. And Weasley's been recording notes, and so Fudge is saying, excellent, make a second copy of that, and Dumbledore, you're coming back with me to the ministry to kind of await trial. <gasps> so that's the shot. Now, the remez, the way we like to do it is to, to take one word and to think about where else in the books, not just this one, but all seven, do we see this word. And so I'm just going to give you it's a small selection to choose from. Escorted back to the ministry. I choose ministry. Mm. I got some pressure in the studio for escorted, but I didn't want to. I choose ministry. So where else does ministry show up? In these books. So the Ministry of Magic, I think, is just in and of itself a place that changes so much in our perception over the course of the seven books. At Mm. first, it's this, like, place of mystery and, like, introduction to the magical world. And safety and control and and, and solidity. Yeah. And then, obviously, by this book, it's showing its cracks in the foundation, to say the least. And later, at the end of this book, there's going to be a battle at the Ministry. And then it becomes this, like, really aggressive place. And so I think that the word ministry, it in and of itself is not a good or a bad thing. And the other thing that's interesting to me is that ministry is also, like, a calling and a vocation mm-hmm. of caring for other people. Mm-hmm. And, like, so to me it has, like, a very devotional, religious, service-oriented connotation to it. Well, what's interesting is that what we know happens next is that Dumbledore is actually escorted by Forks, or Forks takes him out of his office to an unknown location. And in some ways, that's when Dumbledore is really going to enter his vocation into his ministry, because now he's full out leading the rebellion against, you know, not not only the, the Ministry of Magic and Fudge's incompetent and grossly negligent leadership, but also against Voldemort. Like he's had to play this double role for the last many years, but especially this school year, pretending to be subservient. Now he's fully stepping into his vocation. So that's a really interesting reading. Casper, where else is ministry? This might be a bit of a stretch, but of course we do meet the actual prime minister. And in fact, the the first chapter of the next book is called The Other Minister. So I'm thinking, you know, we get to learn the, the Ministry of Magic quite well. But, you know, there, there's an active parliament. There's an active government with multiple ministries. And if we've learned that there's a secret ministry that we didn't know about, who knows what other ministries there are? that we don't know about. There's actually a lot in this word which is unknown. And even the vocational ministry that you mentioned, right, that ministry is also kind of always changing and always slightly mysterious to us, right? If, if you think about a vocation as something that you're responding to, that it's a call in the world that you are responding to and stepping towards, it's a horizon that is always moving, that life happens and things change and new passions are awoken. And I'm seeing an, a mysteriousness to ministry, both as a physical concept and as this vocation. So, Vanessa, the next step is drush. 
And here we ask ourselves, if we were to kind of preach a sermon, if the, if this was the piece of text that we were given to preach from, what is the message that we would offer? Let me read it one more time. Escorted back to the ministry. What would you say? I hate the word escorted because the word escorted to me sounds like a passive aggressive way of saying pushing someone, mm. <laughs> right? Like, let me escort you to the principal's office. It's sometimes given this like sheen of chivalry, like, oh, my escort to the dance. But to me, it always connotes a dishonest pushiness. And so I think I would talk about walking with someone and truly with rather than escorting someone in whatever that means. And it's because escorted is used in that like really duplicitous way here. It's like a fancy way of saying we're taking you against your will. Right. Absolutely. What about you? What would your sermon be about? You know, the etymology for the word escort is really interesting. It comes from the Latin ex to come out of and corrigere, which means to set right, if you think of the word correct, correcting. So there's something about the word escort which suggests putting something right, right? To take out of the situation that we're in and to fix or to, to make correct. And I like the fact that the word escorted is connected to back, right? So that there's something about a return, a returning to set right. So I, I, I guess I don't know what the message would be yet. <laughs> but I'm interested in that image of return and repair. So so much theology, especially in a Christian context that we've been taught, is that we are sinful or damned or wrong, right? That we're somehow fundamentally corrupt as human beings. I mean, you are. <laughs> Evidenced every day. But I like the proposal instead that, you know, instead of original sin, there's original blessing and that there is something inherently good in all of us and that it is, you know, in some way this text is is reminding us to return to that thing that is always there, but that we might have lost sight of. And so... Yeah, to step out of or to return back to the place of fundamental goodness. So finally, here comes the most mysterious of all the practices. This is the fourth and the final step of Pardes, which is to look for the sod or to receive the sod. And the sod is a Hebrew word for secret. And we like to say that, you know, a sod probably always arrives, but it might not be us who received it. So I'll read it one more time, and we'll just spend a, a brief moment in silence as we wait to receive the sowed. Escorted back to the ministry. Escorted back to the ministry. So what came to me, and I'm not sure what to make of it, is the stories around the prophet Elijah, which... You know, the prophet Elijah is similarly discussed as the way that Jesus is discussed in that he could be anywhere at any time. And we're supposed to see anybody with less power than us as mm. uh, as Elijah. And therefore, you're like supposed to receive gifts of any sort when they come to you. And so it's just making me wonder, like, what if Dumbledore went to the ministry? And like, I think it's probably really good that he doesn't. But it's like, what if he had just accepted this escort? And was like, okay, let's go to the ministry. I wonder if Dumbledore didn't resist, but instead like took this offer as if it was from a prophet rather than from an enemy, how things would be different. Wow. What about you? I think about Elijah too much. Can never think about Elijah too much. Right. It struck me that none of these words have the letter U in it. 
I guess I, I'm seeing how invisible individuals become in this kind of justice system and the ways in which the sense of individuality and, and humanness, which human does have the letter U in it, just how, you know, in this magical world, they haven't sorted some things out just like we haven't, justice systems being one of them. Well, thanks, Vanessa. Thank you. You are welcome. <laughs> This week's voicemail is from Shannon Boodleman. Hi, Vanessa and Casper and Ariana. This is Shannon from Seattle. I've been so struck this time around reading The Order of the Phoenix, how much Harry's experience of being stared at and whispered about mirrors the experience of a child with any kind of visible physical differences, whether that's a disability or um, gender expression or religious expression or race. And I've been thinking a lot lately about why I empathize with Dumbledore so much. And I realize that I'm really seeing him through my own lens of parenting a child with a disability. I see Dumbledore trying so imperfectly to keep Harry under his protection as long as possible while still teaching him the skills that he really needs to navigate a truly dangerous world. My own son, who's eight years old now, was born profoundly deaf. And I often really struggle with the need to prepare him for challenges that lie ahead of him, like confronting prejudice and other people, and also my desire to protect his safety and his untarnished view of himself. And knowing when to give messages of warning and messages of pride is not always easy to discern. Sometimes I feel like I haven't given him enough warning about the challenges he faces, and other times I feel like I've taken away his innocence prematurely, and I just see that so much in Dumbledore's efforts to give Harry information and to keep certain information from him until he's older and to give him experiences and skills and also to protect him and keep him safe. So I'm just really interested to hear your thoughts about how we can prepare a child that we love to survive in a world with real evils like ableism, racism, sexism, homophobia? How do we keep their bodies and their spirits intact in a society that's often hostile to their existence and still try to reshape that that society into one that celebrates them and affirms their dignity? Um, I'd love to hear your thoughts. Thank you so much for listening. Bye. Shannon, thank you so much for that voicemail. I think it's like such a beautiful and right desire. My honest answer is that I don't think we can. I think we have to try to make the world as good for our children as possible. And we have to try to get our kids ready to live in the world as it is. You know, we've had so many conversations about hate in this episode. And my response, Shannon, to your note is that really it's about teaching us to love. That that is the way to stand in the midst of the world as it is, as you're saying, Vanessa, to learn how to love, I think, is the greatest gift a child can take from a parent is to to love fiercely and bravely and to keep doing it even when the world around us does not seem so loving. And I'm sure that you do that every day as a parent. Vanessa, it's time for us to bless someone from this chapter. And you know, we've talked about Dumbledore some, but I, I really want to bless him for his just incredibly amazing skills. <laughs> like, you know, there are moments when we see just what an incredibly talented and clearly hardworking wizard Dumbledore is. Like, he has 
achieved levels of magical skill that are far beyond even others' comprehension. And so the fact that he <laughs> disappears in thin air, I mean, we don't see other wizards doing this day to day, certainly not within the halls of Hogwarts, as we know. Because we have read Hogwarts history. Some people do their homework. Um, so I guess I want to be impressed by him. But more than that, in this moment, he is choosing, just like Sirius, isolation and removal from his community of support, from his home, from his toothpaste in his bedroom and, you know, where where the toilet is and where the light switch is and all the things that he knows. He's making a sacrifice. And I want to I want to honor that. So my blessing is for Dumbledore. How about you, Vanessa? <laughs> I would like to bless Hannah Abbott. Hannah has a panic attack about the OWLs that are upcoming, and she is like, I will never be good at herbology. And I just want to bless panicky people everywhere. And working yourself up about things and getting really scared is just human and terrible. And so I want to offer a blessing to Hannah or to anybody who is feeling anxious or panicky about anything coming up, this too shall pass. And, you know, it says Madame Pomfrey has to give the first calming draft to Hannah Abbott, but it means that Madame Pomfrey has this on hand, and it's the first of many, because other kids are going to panic too. Like, you're not alone. The world is anxiety-provoking. That brings us to the end of this episode. You've been listening to Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, or join our Facebook group to chat with other listeners about the episode. People are really nice in there. Or come and join the hundreds of people supporting us on Patreon. A huge thanks to all of you who are doing that. The over a thousand people supporting us on Patreon. You can leave us a review on iTunes, send us a voicemail, and we hope to see you at one of our live shows soon. On April 13th, Vanessa and Ariana will be in Minneapolis, and we'll all be in Indianapolis with John Green on April 15th and in Holyoke, Massachusetts on May 8th. Vanessa will also be in London on June 8th. Next week, we'll be reading Chapter 28, Snape's Worst Memory, live from San Francisco through the theme of entitlement. This episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text was produced by Not Sorry Productions, executive produced by Ariana Nettleman, and with editing support from Ariana Martinez. Our music is by Ivan Paisau and Nick Bull, and we are a proud part of Night Vale Presents. We'd like to thank Shannon Boodleman for this week's voicemail, Julia Argy, Maggie Needham, Danny Agan, and Stephanie Paulsell. And Casper, I would like to thank you. I'd like to thank you too, Vanessa. <laughs> I wanted to make a joke, but I didn't think of anything funny in time. <laughs> <laughs> okay, can we start again? <laughs> I was like, oh. oh I want to be cool, but nothing cool ever occurs to me. Okay.